Because righteousness governs the world. The Rootsland Podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. Greetings to the Rootsland family. We're here broadcasting live and direct. And thanks again for tuning in to another bonus episode of the show. Rootsland's Greatest Hits. Henry? Yeah? I told you I didn't like that name. See, I know. You couldn't come up with something a little more interesting? I asked you to think of something better. You didn't, you didn't come up with anything. What about Zion in a vision? Zion in a vision? Yeah. Actually, that's not bad. Rootsland's Greatest Hits, Zion in a vision. Okay. We can work with that. Actually, that has a nice little twist to it. As you can hear, I have my lovely co-hostess, Sia, in the studio. Wagwan Rootsland family. Thanks for tuning in. Wow, Sia. Very yardy intro. Really representing for your Jamaican peeps there, huh? What do you mean? Me a Jamaican. <laughs> oh, keep laughing. I know all too well. Listen, I know in the music business when a band or a group comes out with the greatest hits project, it usually marks the beginning of the end. Unless, of course, you're the Eagles. But I can assure you that we're still early in the story. And as we move forward into the next chapters of the Rootsland saga, scheduled for release this December, things are going to get pretty intense in my beloved city of Kingston. I thought I had really seen it all. The violence, the brutality, the inhumanity. But everything I had experienced in Jamaica up to this point in the show was just a precursor, a way for me to prepare for what was about to happen, as if I could ever be prepared. I think Maya Angelou probably said it best when she said, you really can't know where you're going until you know where you've been. So true. So after the first 50-plus episodes of our show, this seemed like the right time to reminisce, look back and share some of our favorite Rootsland moments. You mean your favorite moments? Well, no, there are there are favorite moments. It's... Nah, they're your favorite moments. Well, my my favorite moments. Okay, I can work with that. My favorite moments, the people, the music, everything that helped inspire the journey up to now, including you, honey. Oh, I'm honored. In season one, Catch a Fire, the second episode, we meet the great Brian from Colorado for the very first time while answering phones as an intern for Ross Records in Washington, D.C. Brian was a reggae superfan and caller from Boulder, who posed as a record buyer in order to call on the company's toll-free 1-800 number. But Brian was more interested in schmoozing than actually buying anything, which drove the owner, Dr. Dredd, crazy. That sounds like Brian. And as the low man on the totem pole, I was the one responsible for answering the calls that no one else wanted to like the ones from Brian from Colorado. But unlike the other workers at Ross, I found something quite endearing about my future brother-in-arms. Within the first 20 minutes of our phone call, Brian thought he had me all figured out, sized up and fit into a neat little box. What was more annoying was that he was right. You know, Henry, when I first met Brian, I didn't like him. Oh, I, I know. And I don't think he liked me either. I know, I know, I know, Sia. We didn't get along at all. Let me ask you, who do you get along with when you first meet? I got along with you. That's true. But I always get along with Sarah, too. That's true, Sarah. I often wonder how she's doing. Uh-huh. I hope she's doing well. You did warm up to Brian. 
the two of you became pretty close. Yeah, that's true. Brian started preaching. He believed that reggae appealed to a disillusioned generation, that there were millions of young people from around the world who were taught the values and traditions of their parents, but were still left spiritually unsatisfied. We went to our temples, churches, and mosques and read our prayer books, yet there was still something missing, what Brian referred to as the soul of a religion. He said it was only natural that a force like reggae, with rich biblical imagery and powerful lyrics, would be able to bring ancient stories to life for a modern generation. Brian called it a reggae awakening. And he didn't mean that white kids from the suburbs were growing dreadlocks and becoming Rastafarians, although some were. He meant that this music was causing people to look deeper into their own religions and discovering a higher consciousness they never even knew existed. I get the vibe that you're drawn to this music out of some kind of spiritual thirst, man. Maybe you're working at Ross Records for some higher purpose or something. I don't know. Now, I was starting to like the kid, and he may have been right, but I didn't appreciate being judged by someone who barely knew me. Sorry to disappoint you, Brian, I shot back. My quote-unquote higher reason for working here is six credits for my college degree. And the spiritual hunger was actually a girl named Debbie. I went on to tell him about my teenage crush in St. Thomas and the song Your House. But before I finished, I heard a cynical snicker on the other end of the line. And then he cut in. Hey, Henry, when's the last time you actually listened to the song Your House? It's one of the greatest love songs, man. But it's not really about a girl. It's about God. So you just proved my point. Listen, man, I got a role, but remember... The stone that the builder refused shall be the head cornerstone. And then he hung up. And that's how I met Brian from Colorado. And here's that Steel Pulse song, Your House. The song where it all began. In that first season of Rootsland, we're also introduced to another central figure who plays a key role in this story. Friend, protector, benefactor, rude boy Tex, a local gangster from New Kingston. In season one's chapter Love and Hate, Tex saves me from a violent confrontation with a street thug named Viper. At the time, I was terrified. Had no idea what I even did to set this dude off. I was ready to leave Jamaica on the first plane out. But Rude Boy Tex's intervention 
taught me a valuable lesson in confronting one's fears head on. Not that he gave me a choice. It also taught me about the nuances involved in preserving and maintaining peace and order on the street. And who has the real power to make things happen or stop things from happening? Tex was an instrumental part of my life in Jamaica in so many ways. He would be a loyal and devoted friend right until his death in 2006, killed in a car accident on the same New Kingston streets that he ran for so many years. But at the time of his death, Tex's gangster days were mostly behind him. You see, he met and fell in love with a Japanese woman named Keiko, and they had a beautiful daughter together which melted the rude boy's heart. I had seen Tex laugh a thousand times on the street, but I don't think I ever saw him smile until he had his daughter. Wasn't Tex's daughter the same age as our daughter? Yes, she was. Remember they hung out a few times? Beautiful little girl. Yeah, very pretty. Whatever happened to Keiko and Tex's daughter, did they ever go back to Japan? Yeah, they did. You remember they went back before Tex was killed? Yeah, you're right. I hope she realizes what a legend her father was. He wasn't given much in life, and he really did the best he can with what he had to work with. New Kingston's first conscious gangster. Now, I had to take my order from Tex and do what I was told. No questions asked. Because the guy from this morning, his name was Viper. And since he disrespected me on Tex's turf, that was a disrespect to Tex. When Tex heard, he went ballistic and had a little talk with Viper. Now, tomorrow, when I went to work, Viper would have to apologize to me, publicly, in front of his crew. You have to face him and make that pussy beg for forgiveness. Are you serious? I don't want to deal with these guys. I mean, even if he is sorry, can't we just leave it at that? No, man, this is the streets. You have to deal with certain things according to the laws of the streets. The moment of the apology came and went. It was anticlimactic to say the least, which was fine with me. When Viper saw me, he ran across the street and immediately held out his hand as a gesture of peace. A strikingly different tone from yesterday. I did notice something else strikingly different. He had a bruised and swollen face. Yo, Jakes, Jano, sorry my youth. I never meant any kind of disrespect. It was a joke. A joke we, we was making. It's all good, no worries. Yo, Henry, just make sure everything good with Tex, man. Tell Tex, it's a little misunderstanding. It was a misunderstanding, you know? Love and hate really sorry. can never be friends. Oh, no. Oh, and just no. like that, it was done. Quelled. And the viper crawled back into his burrow. When people hear the term street justice, it usually invokes images of vigilante beatings or high-profile shootings with bodies covered in blood-stained sheets. I guess those are the images that make the evening news or headlines that sell papers. What text taught me is that every day, in every scheme, every garrison and ghetto, there's a constant series of negotiations, truces, liaisons, that don't involve violence or guns or murder, but carefully orchestrated parleys arranged between power brokers and overbosses. Gangster generals who, like most hardened soldiers that have seen battle, would prefer to avoid a war 
Turns out, on the streets of Kingston City, like the rest of the world, killing is easy. Keeping the peace is the real challenge. And just like that, order was restored on Holborn Road. I certainly had peace of mind. But even that had a cost. Now, I owe Tex a favor. And he collected what he was owed. Remember my youth, my youth, my youth, my youth, my youth, my youth, my youth. Love and hate can never be friends. Oh no, oh no. Here I come with love and not hatred. Show the goodness and mercy shall follow I all the days of my life. Envy no one, no wish to be with no evil man. For there'll come the day when you'll be whipped by the father's hand. Leave a brute's children. Oh yeah. Leave a pastor's children. You know, see, as much as I loved going to those live reggae shows, working in the studio, and of course enjoying those street dances under the stars holding you tight. Corny! (laughs) Some of my most memorable times were simply just hanging out in New Kingston, next to the Kentucky Fried Chicken with Brian, Tex, and the whole New Kingston crew. Like in season two's episode, Panda Corner. You mean Panda Corner, say it properly. Yeah, Ponda Corner. Okay. And with everything happening in the world, those times just seem so innocent. Innocent? I got nervous when you're on the road. Them times was dangerous. Oh, I know. I remember. Remember I tell you not to go hang out with Tex and them guys on the corner? I do remember. That's always worried. Ironically, at the time, I don't even think I enjoyed it that much. Being out there in the hot sun for hours, breathing in all those exhaust fumes... I felt like we were wasting time, not getting anything done musically, when in fact, that was exactly where we were supposed to be, upon the corner. Brian knew that's where life happened. That's where stories were told, and as Stevie Wonder would say, songs are written in the key of life. Yo, Henry, did Brian tell you I found the perfect house for Ono? Yo, Tex, it, I... Text it sounds great. It's up in the hills. But up in Armour Heights. Pure rich people live there. Pure white people. So it's safe. You're gonna fit right in. Text it sounds great, but what do you think? They're just gonna let two guys from another country come down here, move into a beautiful house, with no jobs, no rent history or references. I mean come on. My last paycheck was from the New York State Unemployment Agency. And Brian, well, we all know Brian's work history. Ah. Come on, man. Don't go there. What, are we dissing each other now? No no disrespect. I was joking about the beef patties. Don't get all... Life life just doesn't work like that, Tex. What are you going to do? Are you going to write us a reference letter? Don't patronize me, Henry. You think I don't know how the world works? You think I don't know how my country works, Bridget? 
You don't need no Ross Clark reference letter. You don't know you have the best reference letter in Jamaica already. Oh yeah, what letter is that? W for white, virgin. Really? You better go back to the hotel and call the people quick before someone rent it. Yeah, yeah, you heard the man, Henry. Go make the call. Oh, don't kiss up. Hey, Henry, wait, 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 before you head up. I want you to, I want you to hear a little piece of this tune I've been working on. It's about text and like, you know. Okay, it's about time you're working on something, all right. You know, how Pondicana. You're not just wasting time on the corner, you're actually doing something here. All right, let's see what you got. This one special dedication, live and direct, going out to the man called Tex Pondicana. Straight up from the man called Brian. Wheel. All right, get to it already, please. Run the rhythm, brethren. Now this one dedicated to the man called Tex no one. Watch this. Dump on the corner. Why, Come here now. Dump on the corner where the rude boys flex. Dump on the corner with the bad boy text. Uh. Lord have his mercy. Dump on the corner where the rude boys flex. Dump on the corner with the bad boy text. Lord have. Dump on the corner where the rude boys flex. Dump on the corner. The bad boy takes somebody bad boy them a shoot on you. Some of them a lock it up on some of them a cock it up a gunshot. Me say man a talking but like cut it put it on cock. And the situation come on up, you know it well at yeah. Down on the corner where the rude boys flex. Down on the corner with the rude boy takes lot. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Some of them are off a loop on you Some of them are fish susu every day And them are come on them play Long time we chat a long time I say Dump on the street, dump on the corner A rude voice come of them on the area Some of them are rolling top up one pan area And some of them are causing a mass hysteria And the one call text them off and put them on flex Some of them are laugh, some of them are talk In the season 4 finale Going Home I traveled to West Jamaica with the love of my life, Sia. Tanay Grill, the once sleepy little fishing village that had transformed over the decades into a worldwide tourist mecca. While returning one night from a romantic dinner on the beach, an uneducated and belligerent security guard at a hotel mistakenly took my Kingstonian girlfriend, Sia, for a local Nay Grill, Madam of the Night. Oh boy. Remember that? How can I forget? That was humiliating. Oh, oh, yeah. Completely insulting to me. A good thing you held me back, Henry. Boy, you know? Oh, yeah, I know. I'd have given that man a piece of my mind. And probably a piece of my fist. Well, I'm, I'm glad you showed some restraint. It would have locked me up that night. Arrest me. I think it was a weekend. You probably wouldn't have got out of jail till Monday. Oh, yeah. I tried to calm down, see you by recounting an incident that occurred with my dear friend and mentor Bob Andy, also in Negril years earlier. That's when Bob, one of Jamaica's greatest entertainers, in another case of mistaken identity and stereotyping, was treated like a common criminal at a newly opened four-star Negril resort and given an embarrassing pat-down by an overzealous hotel security guard on our way to meet the owner of the resort. The grace and dignity in which both Bob and Sia handled themselves under the most dehumanizing and insulting circumstances 
even today remains truly remarkable. You know, for some people, the obstacles they face in life become debilitating, cause mental and physical stagnation. Others find the strength to jump over those hurdles. And once they're airborne, they don't ever come down. Bob was concentrating on the road like a race car driver at the starting line, his mind spinning a million miles per hour, running the race in his head, plotting his route, planning his moves, every twist and turn on the course ahead. He didn't say much that entire ride back to Kingston, but he didn't have to. His expression said it all. Bob was on a mission, focused, determined. Everything was in motion. The ocean breeze blew through the open windows. The air was salty and humid. Bob stayed locked on the road, and his dreadlocks swayed in the wind. And that's when it dawned on me. Why he actually had me stay in his room that previous day? Why he had me sit there for what seemed like eternity, agony, and see him on the floor, broken, depressed, humiliated, stripped of his dignity and all of his accomplishments. Bob Andy wanted me to see him hit rock bottom so I could witness his rebirth. Watch him rise from the ashes the very next morning like nothing happened. This was a man that had been beaten down over and over again since he was a child. Just like you, Sia, faced obstacles every step of the way, just like you. And just when he thought he had found some peace, some happiness, all of a sudden... He had to start all over again, from scratch. Rebuild what he thought was a safe and solid foundation. But it turns out all those beatings, all that abuse and hurt, made him invincible, just like you are. Sia stepped away from the front desk into the middle of the lobby. She looked like a cross between a supermodel and a CEO, standing there in the early morning light, in high heels and a light green linen business suit, with a double-breasted blazer. Her long, curly hair was waving from the ceiling fan above her, and every eye in the lobby was on her, captivated by her. The guests, the hotel staff, me. On this lazy Negril morning, there was no mistaking her for anything but what she truly was a queen, and everyone knew they were in the presence of royalty. Henry, come on. I'm ready to go home. Sia made her choice. I'd seen that look before. That's what an unstoppable force looks like when it gets started. When someone decides to live their life instead of merely existing. I pulled out of the treehouse and made a right turn onto Negril's main road towards Savlamar. I was going home along the south coast. I always loved the south coast. Tomorrow, I am going 
In the summer of 1992, I was lucky enough to visit someplace very special. A small slice of land wedged in between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan that many people in the world, including myself, consider to be the center of the universe, Eretz Yisroel, the land of Israel, and its crown jewel, the holy city of Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Roughly translated means foundation, or dwelling place of peace. Yeah, I know, it doesn't really live up to the name, does it? In this arid range of sacred ground stands Mount Zion, where Avraham, the patriarch of three of the world's most influential religions, stood ready to sacrifice the life of his son Isaac in order to prove his loyalty to the one true God. And later in the same spot is where King Solomon would fulfill the Lord's commandment and build a great temple in the name of Hashem, and in its center, the Holy of Holies, a secret chamber designed to house the Ark of the Covenant and its irreplaceable contents, the Ten Commandments, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jerusalem's city of peace is where the young rabbi, Yeshua from Nazareth would come to preach his gospel and stand up to what he believed was corruption in that very same temple. It's where he would be tried, convicted, and crucified by those who feared him the most and then resurrected by the one who loved him the most. On Mount Zion, the noble sanctuary is where the archangel Gavriel met Islam's greatest prophet Muhammad on what is now the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the two ascended to heaven, stopping along the way to meet the Quran's greatest prophets. And if that's still not enough, Jerusalem is also a city where you can find the best falafel on just about every street corner. Now, shouldn't that be enough of a reason for all of us just to live together and peacefully coexist? But no, it's not. Jerusalem, the cornerstone of peace, has a big frickin' crack in its foundation. And if we can't find a way to repair it, this whole entire place may come tumbling down. Being in the Holy Land, I was mesmerized, completely transfixed with all the ancient ruins, historic cities, sacred burial grounds. I was surrounded by 4,000 years of civilization's most holy and revered sites, buried one layer on top of the next, 
And as much as I enjoyed learning about and exploring this ancient land's rich multicultural history, it was actually a glimpse into Israel's multicultural future that gave me the most hope on my trip to the Holy Land. And would you be surprised if I told you what happened at a reggae club named Soweto, located in a cramped basement just a few blocks away from Tel Aviv's trendy beaches, owned and managed by the Israeli music impresario and promoter Gil Bonstein, the man responsible for supplying Israel and the Middle East with a steady flow of Jamaican roots reggae and world music since the 1970s. When Dr. Dredd from Ross Records told Gil that I was coming to Israel on a family trip, Gil generously invited me to have a launch party at his Tel Aviv club for my newly released Eddie Fitzroy album, Deep in My Culture. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I just couldn't pass up. Now maybe I was a little intoxicated with the spirit of this righteous land. Or it could have been the strong Lebanese hashish that Gil made me try at his house earlier. But that night, I had a garnet silk moment. I was able to see Zion in a vision. You see that same year, in 1992? The young Rastafari singer Garnet Silk released his smash hit, Zion in a Vision, a song about a dream where he enters the promised land and goes on to sing, Everything seems so real, the oneness of Jah I could feel. His love filled me up. Oh Lord, I didn't want to wake up. We were all singing the same song, giving thanks and praises to the Almighty One. All I could feel was happiness, surrounded by righteousness. I saw Zion in a vision. But for me, this was no vision. This was real. You see, in that smoky, sweaty reggae club, I saw with my own eyes, Palestinians, Muslims and Christians, dancing alongside Jews, Ashkenazi and Sephardic. They were Ethiopian immigrants, recently airlifted by Israel from their famine-stricken land, right alongside Bedouins and black Arabs from nearby Ramallah. There were tourists of every shade and color, every size and shape, every ethnicity and religion, all just enjoying peaceful, positive vibes. And of course it would be a reggae club that would bring these disparate camps together to celebrate life. I left the club that night believing there was some hope for this troubled land. A few days later before leaving Israel, we made one last stop in Jerusalem, at the Temple Mount, to pray at the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, one of the holiest sites for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. The last surviving structure left of Solomon's Great Temple, destroyed by the Romans over 2,000 years ago, and the closest spot one can come to the Holy of Holies the very spot where the Ark of the Covenant was once hidden and still may be buried somewhere deep under the Temple Mount. Tradition says if you write down a prayer on a piece of paper and place it into one of the cracks on the wall, your prayer will ascend directly to heaven. And at the time I was in Israel, Sia was pregnant with our daughter back in Kingston and I just had one very simple prayer. I hoped that my little girl would be safe in such a violent place, surrounded by such brutality. 
and that she would get a chance to grow up in a world of peace and love and tolerance where all people could be free and happy. Now it's almost 30 years later, and I'm still waiting for that prayer to reach heaven. And I know it's far away, and I'm not sure how much longer it will take. But I can tell you, there'd be no better time for that prayer to reach heaven than right now. I know I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. Those things that divide us, like polytricks, isms, and schisms, they're strong, designed by men to separate and keep us apart from each other. But the things that unite us, like love, faith, and hope, they come from a higher power and are so much stronger. I know that one day we'll have peace on earth, but until then, we have Zion in a vision. Like a family.